Hey, it's George K. Just a quick reminder that we're taking a break to celebrate the end of season one. Here's a replay of our conversation with J.D. Sherry. It offers valuable insights from the VC side with advice on how and when to scale sales teams and cautionary tales about what happens when cyber startups try to do that too early. Both George A. and I will be at Black Hat and DEF CON this year, and you can hang out with us and a whole bunch of other podcast all-stars on August 9th at 5 p.m., including our friends at Hacker Valley Media, the Cyber Queens, and Audience First. Register at cyberpodworld.com. That's cyberpodworld.com. We will return to our regular program after Black Hat. And now, J.D. Sherry. The, the common guidance we give is don't scale the sales team too fast. Even bringing in some consultant from a messaging and go-to-market to make sure that's tight before you put the accelerator on the sales team is important. Don't be so quick to, to dump money into the sales team thinking it's going to automatically generate the revenue and the ARR you're looking for. So make sure the, the product's right, the engineering's right, um, that your ad customer advisory board is really giving you valuable input into the roadmap and what they would buy. You know, So surround yourself with those people as you get ready to go to market. It's going to be valuable. And then you're going to be able to test the waters with, with adding more sales reps. Welcome back to Bare Knuckles and Brass Tacks, the cybersecurity podcast that tackles the vendor-customer relationship. I'm George K. with the vendor side. And I'm George A., a Chief Information Security Officer. And today, we are super excited to have someone from the venture capital side of the equation, J.D. Sherry, client partner. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, guys. Great to be a part of the program. I appreciate you having me on. Yeah, so we'll just start. Um, let's get a quick and dirty version of how you got into cyber before we get into the, the bare knuckle portion of the show. Yeah, so, sounds great. So uh, you can't quite see my my hair follicles, but uh, I've been in cyber for 25 plus years and uh, have the gray hair and, and the, the loss of hair to prove it. But um, ultimately, the, the big thing that drove me into cyber is I was working for a federal contractor on the IT side, program management Um and we were a contractor for the Department of Energy. And with that, we um, we were building the non-nuclear components in nuclear weapons. So you you quickly become familiar with how to handle classified information, uh, which mm -hmm. obviously is, is topical in the news lately, um, anywhere from uh, electronic information to classified parts. And you, you have security at the forefront. So naturally, uh, that became embedded in me and, and cyber uh, became kind of part of my DNA from that experience. When you're when you're looking at national security implications, um, you have a whole different outlook on life and how you handle data. Yeah, I'm sure, uh, George, A., you can add to that. <laughs> yeah, I'm, uh, I'm an ex uh, sales intelligence specialist with uh, the Army. So that was uh, very much my life, man. I appreciate where you're coming from. Yeah, likewise. Thanks for your service. So uh, we'll get into it. You're on kind of the vendory side, uh, enough that we're going to allow the CISO to take the first shot. Sounds great. <laughs> Thanks, George. Yeah. So um, 
you know, obviously a friend of the show, Mike Rogers said that you are a trustable sales guy, which coming from Mike is a pretty substantial phrase. Cause like, you know, I, I love Mike cause he seems to hate everyone and I hate everyone too. So he speaks to my heart. <laughs> uh, given that you prefer to play the long game with your clients and that's something Mike was very adamant about what are your thoughts on BDR bullpens I mean do your portfolio companies still use them or do you tend to dissuade their use given your preference to a more humanized approach yeah yeah Mike's a great guy and I've learned a lot in working with Mike over the years one I think one of the things that that jump out and why Mike and I clicked is um, I'm a former practitioner, so I've uh, been a CIO of a large IT shop, been able to see um, how that has evolved and, and the inner workings of, you know, running a 24 by 7 shop. So you feel the the, the pain, you understand the camaraderie of, of working with somebody across the aisle. And I think that's important in the sales process. The, that level of empathy mm. of what somebody's going through is, is great. And I, I would chalk that up. Uh, on how I like to sell in much more of a consultative type of approach, right? Where, where you're really trying to understand the requirements of the individual. You're not trying to be forceful of, Hey, I've got three widgets and you need to buy all three. And I think that that lends itself into a, you know, the proverbial trusted advisor. And, and, you know, from where I am now at Astari, that's one of our um, North stars for lack of a better term, right? We, we definitely want to become a trusted advisor. And I think as you look at our portfolio companies um, there, I would say is an interesting dynamic around BDRs and how they approach it. And it, it's similar to what um, when I was running sales uh, at a couple of different startups and how I approached it too. I think if you're early, early stage, which, you know, we typically have um, partners that invest in early stage companies, right? So we have companies like mm-hmm. uh, Teammate, Synventures, uh, 1011 as some of our limited partners that, that look at the early stage investments. We're more in the growth stage. So as you, as you look at the growth stage investments, they've, they've started across the chasm. They've got some product market fit, right? They've got a good handle on it. They need some, uh, some help with go-to-market strategy, probably more than anything. And then that lends itself to how do we enable and, and provide capability uplift for sales and marketing. And, you know, as you look at that, um, I would recommend in, 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 from a BDR approach, um, a, a hybrid approach. And, and when I say that, it means um, bringing in uh, some entry level inside people that have known cyber for a little while. And I know that can be that can be tough if somebody's just trying to get their start. Somebody with an IT background, problem solver, uh, can can look at things from an analytical perspective, uh, and ultimately um, be able to train them up as an individual uh, within the inside sales organization. And I think from there, as you start to look at two, three, four inside sales rep, depending on the size of your sales force and and your customer base, I think you're going to potentially look to scale that with maybe a hybrid approach of an outsourcing entity, right? And but I will caution um, that that can that can backfire if you don't have a strategy around how to coach that outsourced. Uh, 
provider, what your messaging is, that go-to-market strategy, it can come across to your clients as as smarmy and too salesy mm-hmm. and really not understanding the business. And you know everything I just said uh, before is knowing the business, understanding the requirements. So I think organizations um, haven't completely cut that out, but I think they're taking more of a hybrid approach versus solely relying on you know uh, just a, a tank of BDRs that may not completely understand the business. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, that does make sense. I mean, from the marketing side. I've always been of the opinion, and this is something that's changing where BDRs sit. You know, usually they're under sales because they're just seen as part of a, a vertical sales organization. But from a startup lens, if you're trying to build a brand, you're trying to build credibility from the marketing side. My question is always like, do you want your first contact with the brand to be, you know, an outsourced agency that may or may not have skin in the game, you know, like you could do all this work on the marketing side. You could, uh, woo the analysts, you could throw cool events. You could have robots on everything and they look, they're designed really cool. And everyone's got a vibe about your brand and some no name individual with, you know, no incentive structure, just banging the phones on your behalf. That's that, that would be George A's first contact with the brand. And then that's, is that really worth the counter investment? The best point though. And this is something I'm really impressed with you, man. You're a practitioner. I really believe yeah. if you're a practitioner and you're in sales, man, the ball is in your court. Like you are a God out there. Cause that is the single differentiator right now. And I, I would pick up the phone from you knowing it's you because you were a practitioner on that fact alone, man. That is awesome. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I think to touch on, thank you. Appreciate that. Um, it, it's one of those things that, uh, if, if you can, um, come across as genuine, um, and, and if that, mar- I, I agree with you, George, in the sense that the, the marketing group is starting to own more of the BDR, because if you think about it, they're just, the BDRs are trying to set appointments. They're mm-hmm. trying to get meetings. Yeah. They're trying to get a foot in the door and bring some more seasoned sales professionals in that maybe, um, have a better command of the portfolio, better command of the product, the platform. Um, so I, I think if, if marketing is going to take that on, it has to be very well scripted. It can't be just, hey, we're going to throw as much stuff against the wall and hope something right. sticks. Because to your point, it dilutes the brand. It dilutes the message. And you start to... You know, you start to get the CISOs that are smearing your name out on LinkedIn and Twitter because you're not taking that that wholesome approach. Right. That's the wrong thing to do. Yeah. I would also say, like, if when we talk about these scripts, you know, for the listeners, right, it's call scripts, it's pitch scripts, whatever. But you also have to script the the ripcord like this is how you exit the call, you know, because you're going to run into like straight up. I don't have budget right now. I'm not interested if you don't give them, this is the lever to pull like, okay, well, I understand that. Would it be okay to follow up with you? If you don't give them something like human to say, they sort of just get into a panic loop, get the meeting, get the meeting, get the meeting. And that's where you start getting that behavior that I'm just going to reach for anything and see if I can just 
bludgeon you into <laughs> accepting this calendar invite, you know? Yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, I, I think there's, there's SaaS based companies that are trying to help automate that it's, you know, as, as much yeah. as that doesn't sound humanized, but any, it's, it's not unlike other sales organizations, whether you're selling it yeah. in cyber or not, you're going to have that function and the good ones that succeed plan for all the objections, right? They plan mm-hmm. for, um, how, how to get that follow-up, you know, it may not be today, but how can I say, how can I ask for a follow-up that doesn't seem like, you know, I'm not taking no for an answer. Right. And there's ways to do that. Um, and I, I think ultimately being able to humanize that is a, is a big part of, of training either the, the outsourced group or certainly the inside sales rep or the business development rep that, um, that ultimately is getting paid per appointment. Right. we got to make sure that we do that the right way. Yeah. Well, so, uh, earlier you said where you all focus is in that growth stage and you were mentioning the gut product market fit and, and where the crux is now is in the go to market, right? So that's actually my question here is what are some of the most common patterns or pitfalls you see, you know, portfolio companies fall into when they're developing those high growth go to market strategies? Well, I, I, you know, I'm going to show a little bit of my vulnerability here. Um, I think what's uh, a common occurrence in, you know, early stage, even series A and, and B is, you know, they'll ultimately think that that they have that product market fit. Like they've got it nailed. They've acquired, you know, maybe double digit customers. And now it's time to take money and dump it all into the sales force so you can scale, right? Give everybody Mm -hmm. a quota and you can do the math from there. And that can be a huge mistake if you don't have that product market dialed, right? And Mm. um, so I think the, the common guidance we give is don't scale the sales team too fast, Right. Really make sure that um, even even bringing in some consultant from a messaging and go to market to make sure that's tight before you put the accelerator on the sales team is important. Um, so yeah. I think that's the, the common guidance we would give is don't be so quick to, to dump money into the sales team thinking it's going to automatically generate the revenue in the ARR you're looking for. So make sure the, the product's right, the engineering's right, um, that your ad- customer advisory board is really giving you valuable input into the roadmap and what they would buy, you know, so, uh, you know. Smart guys like like George would go in and be able to provide a CISO's perspective. Surround yourself with those people as you get ready to go to market. It's going to be valuable. And then you're going to be able to test the waters with with adding more sales reps. Um, I would also look at adding some people um, that have been practitioners. And that can be in the form of solution sales engineers, companies that have a little bit more capital, like we invest from Series B to Series D. Um, mm-hmm. They start to invest in people that are former CISOs that maybe have done some consulting and, and have that background where they've they've had a butt in the chair. Right. So those are key things as you go to market. Yeah, I've seen a real increase in the field CISO role. And I think that's a realization there to like, I got to get practitioners out talking on my behalf and understanding the environment, because to your point, a lot of teams just believe I have the perfect product. I just need to go sell it, but they don't actually know. Is that how people are buying? Is that how the budget cycle works? Is it like a really, you think it's like a catch all, but 
your customers perceive it as a niche product, you know, and I think you you're seeing more of the field CISO role kick up as this hybrid between somebody who's incentivized by sales, but has a, a strong risk management uh, background. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. They built security programs. They understand mm. maybe some of the regulatory and compliance issues that I say are important, but can get in the way of, of securing the organization. Right. So they get that. Um, and I think they, they strike a good balance in the account with the client to be able to say, um, you know, what direction uh, makes the most sense for them. And in some cases, it you know, like I pride myself on, you know, saying, hey, that might be some other products that that I don't have, <laughs> right? That I've heard of that's strong, and you're able to bring that in to, to help. So you're gonna you're gonna benefit from that down the road. The long game, as you guys mentioned at the top of the show, you're gonna benefit benefit from doing that versus trying to push push a widget inside a quarterly deadline. <laughs> yeah. Sure. Speaking of, by the way, I, I appreciate that you kind of natural segue to that, and I, and I fully agree because going back to like my perspective as a buyer. If I know that you know what you're doing as the seller, I'm automatically going to have so much room for whatever the fuck you're telling me. Because I'm like, okay, cool. <laughs> at least you understand your product. At least I can feel confident that you understand your product. Because ultimately, this whole game is trust, right? Yeah. Um, but you no, exactly. Up, you bring up another point, though, on setting targets. I'm really curious about this. And I've been dying dying to talk to a real VC just for this question. How do you, how do you calculate your targets for your portfolio companies? I mean, there are, and I'm sure you've seen, you know, the last six, seven, eight months, a lot of the, uh, the cuts that have happened and it's beyond just SVP and Credit Suisse. This was already in motion before that happened. You know, the often unreasonable pressure that sales organizations face to maintain year-over-year growth at exponential numbers seems to drive a lot of the bad sales experiences, both for sellers and for practitioners. I'd be interested to understand your methodology for revenue growth benchmarking. Yeah, um, you know, I think it might be a little bit different for the earlier stage, right? And, you know, as we look at um, our growth investments, again, Series B to Series D, we'll, we'll typically look at the health of the business around a 30 to 100% growth rate annually, right? Those are some of the targets that we look at. Obviously, you start getting into a little bit of the large law of large numbers um, with some of the bigger companies. So that's more on the 30% side. But when you're looking at Series B, you know, you want to start seeing, you know, 100% uh, growth rate in ARR, right? So one of the interesting approaches, and this might be a good segue of how we're a little bit different than the traditional cyber VCs. And we all know that cyber VCs aren't unique. They've been in the, the game probably for the last, I don't know, uh, eight to 10 years, they started to, to spawn. But what I would say is different about our model and, and our investor plays the long game. It's, it's Tomasic out of Singapore. They believe um, that in investing in the right product market fit, the right leadership team um, will allow those portfolio companies to then leverage the Astari model, which is a combination of investor, educator. So we partner with um, the likes of Columbia University and and Cambridge University to create really uh bespoke executive level cyber education. So George, as you're advancing your career and you're, and you're, um, 
uh, you know, your, your successors are coming through the organization. Those are the people that we want to help grow. We think that's super important. So we've got a very tight lens on that. Um, and then from an advisory perspective, we're able to then augment that particular portfolio company or companies to then add more to the growth engine. So traditional uh, cyber VCs may have advisors um, and that's, you know, people in the industry that have come with street cred. Uh, they've been on multiple companies, maybe have exited multiple companies and, and know the process where we're a little bit different than that is you've got folks like me that are former CISOs, CIOs, startup CEOs that are working on behalf of those portfolio companies. So we also then create our targets to enable their business. So we don't think it's unreasonable um, when they partner with the Starry to look at that 30 to 100% growth rate annually, right? From an ARR perspective, because we're helping there. We're not, we're not just telling them it's all on you. We're, we're actually going shoulder to shoulder with them uh, to bring them into clients and help them out with go to market. Um, I would say the last piece, you know, revenue is our primary focus uh, with, with growth companies. And then from there, as they start to evolve and mature, we're going to be then focusing on profitability, as you can imagine, because as they start to move through the different series, we're going to be having a keen focus on can they go public uh, and do they have the right metrics on profitability to, to go public with the revenue. So um, and then as we saw through the pandemic and I experienced this personally, cash is king. So we want to make sure that they're doing a good job with cash flow and burn. Um, and that comes down mm -hmm. to, you know, proper revenue forecasting, do they've got a tight sales forecasting model, uh, weighted pipeline, and then also are they managing headcount uh, and FTEs accordingly? So those those three key areas are what we really look, really look for when it comes to targets and how we measure success from our portfolio companies. Yeah. So something, there's a lot to unpack there, but I think between what uh, George was saying about you know, crazy growth expectations. And then what you said earlier, JD, about scaling too quickly. You know, I have a lot of friends in sales who, when they're looking for other gigs, they're actually watching who has like a ton of open wrecks for sales. And it makes them nervous because it says like, if you're hiring suddenly like 20 reps, you know, in one territory or something, they get nervous because lately what we've been seeing is you see these companies go like, like balloon out. And then yeah, I guess on a wing and a prayer, they hope that the revenue catches up. And when it doesn't, you know, they, they, they pair back and they, and the reps talk to each other. They're, they're actually saying like, I don't know, they hired a bunch of people, you know, six months ago, and it looks like they're making cut. And they take that as a bellwether of the management style of how they're how they're scaling. Yeah, that's right. And, it, you know, scaling too fast. And then that's also an example of being calculated around the cash burn. Right. And, and how mm. they're burning uh, the investment and the capital they have. Um, you know, you bring up a good point around on the on the sales churn. You know, a lot of those times, um, you know, companies are uh, going to look at and target specific markets, you know, some of the key larger markets, and they may put several reps within certain target markets as well. And just mm. and just say, you know, survival of the fittest. Right. But <laughs> right. I think that's really, uh, that's a really expensive hiring process. It, it is. It is. And, you know, I think as a, as a rule of thumb, you know, as I've come to learn this over a couple of different journeys now, you know, those reps have to be consumed. Like they have to be, mm -hmm. 
the, the initial ones you hire have to be so overwhelmed with leads and, and opportunities mm. that they're they're taking calls 10 hours a day. If not, mm. you should you shouldn't overhire. Right. And I think that's yeah. that's a big key thing to, to consider. Yeah, that's that's good. And I so I want to go into a different uh, set of metrics here. Yeah. So w- as you're talking about the journey from B to D, which for the listeners is, you know, go from sort of early stage product market fit and then the hyper growth mode. How are you weighing the relative significance of sales success metrics like new logo acquisition versus customer retention or churn? Because I have seen a lot of companies go after the new logos because that's a, a metric that they tout when they go to raise capital on the next round. But, you know, you scratch beneath the surface and, you know, they're not getting multi-year deals or people are, you know, that, that cost of churn is eventually going to catch up. And I guess that's, that's the, the money, but to George A's point, he's always saying like, you should be working for the renewal, like on the first deal, like building the level of trust that I'm going to sign on for the next series. Because if he, if you burn him and it didn't work or the implementation sucked or whatever, I mean, yeah, you lost the logo, but he also went and told all of his friends. That's right. That's right. You know, I think you have to, it's a good question. I think you have to look at both of those in, in combination and it's, um, it's a little bit of art and science. I, th- I think from that perspective, including, you know, what segment are you in, right? Are you, mm-hmm. Are you uh, are you in an e- in a new EDR? You're in S- MSSP, or are you in you know crypto? Wh- whatever you're looking at, you got to take a look at that too. But from from our perspective, um, I think high new logo acquisition with high churn that's not going to um, be an, an indicator of business growth. Um, mm-hmm. You know, on the flip side of that, uh, you know, limited logo acquisition and low turn. Uh, is is going to be hard to increase the value of the business too. So what what I've always tried to take a look at is what you know in in the early stages that that I've been a part of, if you can get um, some really good high quality logos, um, and it could be a variety of different market sizes. Everybody wants to go land the white whale, right? And land the yeah. five hundred. Yeah. You know, depending on what what phase you're in, that's going to be difficult. Your product might not mm. even be enterprise class yet. Right. So I think as you go do that, it, you, you need to anticipate longer sales cycles and then it's going to be harder to mm-hmm. bring revenue in for those. And uh, I'm not saying don't do that. I think it, it just depends on the people you have that can maybe go into those accounts, but it is absolutely imperative that when you acquire those logos, you do everything you can from a customer success perspective to learn from them, to make sure that they're, that they're catered to bespoke, um, you know, certain aspects of, of your product evolution to what they're telling you because they're using it. And Mm -hmm. I think it's important to then have them as reference customers. So, you know, if, if I don't make George a happy, I'm never going to be able to use him as a reference customer. And that is critical as you start to stack logos. Right. And, and even the smaller deals that you do, and and maybe you've got, you know, 50% of your businesses in the SME space that you've got logos acquired, you can use those as reference customers and start to stack and build uh, and grow your, your, uh, you know, you're, speak you're a huge organizational that point, though, um, before we go to brass tacks, it's a lot of organizations will build amazing tech. Their sales team will absolutely wine and dine and wow you. 
you sign the contract, service and support is absolute dog shit for like one to three years. And that's where you lose them. That's where you lose me. And like, I'll tell you, like from my, from a, from a vendor management standpoint, if I like you and I like your product and I like buy with you, you're the incumbent. Somebody's really going to have to like win me over mm-hmm. to unseat you. Like you, you're losing that if, if, if I move on from you. The biggest thing that drives that from my perspective, service and support shit, can't get help when I need it or when they do send me help, it's useless. So I think that's another factor yeah. that organizations have to invest in. I like that you said support. So I've seen a lot of investment, like you said, again, JD, go into the hunt part of the organization, right? It's the sales reps, BDRs. It's like the hunt forward operations. Um, I see less investment with budget earmarked for sales into customer success support. What is that feedback loop back to product engineering? Because like you said, if you win the business, great. Now keep them happy basically by any means necessary because you, you can't build off of, uh, off of failure. It's just a colossus on a, on feet of clay sort of. Yeah, problem. yeah, exactly. Right. And, and how do you even like improve your product that way? <laughs> you know, it's, yeah, you're not I mean, that's, that's, yeah, that's that product market fit is you're fine tuning, you know, the model until you get to, to that. Yeah, you, you got to double down on the customers. All right. Well, that's a great place to stop. We're going to take a short break and uh, we will be right back for the brass tax portion of the show. Hey, Bare Knuckle Brawlers. If you like what you hear, be sure to like, subscribe and share. Follow our LinkedIn page for updates, including upcoming swag giveaways. Now back to our conversation with J.D. Sherry. And we're back. And now it is the brass tax portion of the show. George A started, so I will take up this portion. Uh, JD, if you had to impart one piece of advice to a CEO or CRO, I'll let you take your pick, about building and scaling a sales team, what would that advice be? Yeah, I guess uh, right, wrong or otherwise, I've, I've had both seats and it's, it's definitely... Um, an interesting journey of when you are able to do the luxury of, of growing revenue organically, that that's a great problem to have. You still have to think about how you want to scale your sales team, or if you've come into an injection of capital through a a firm like ours or other cybersecurity VCs that um, are expecting you to grow and, you know, grow can be in, in uh, air quotes there. Right. Um, (laughs) You know, uh, often initially, you know, if you think you've got product market fit, you think that means grow by adding sales and marketing. And and often that can um, be the case. But, uh, you know, we touched on a little bit earlier in the show. I think it's important to hold off as long as you can on really um, injecting a, a ton of sales motion. Um, into your efforts, especially Series A, until you really feel good that the product's stable. Because I I would tell you that even companies coming out of um, seed and into Series A, their product may not be ready for prime time. So if you're if you're Mm -hmm. having a sales team that's going out there and you have a lot of them and they're they're pushing um, a product that isn't isn't ready for the enterprise, it's going to blow up. 
uh, in their face. And ultimately, if they're able to get deals, um, you know, that sales team is going to struggle to keep that customer happy because the product's not there. So I think the sales team has to be grown in, you know, a, a, a fashion where the product is evolving um, to match that product market fit. So I would I would highly discourage people rushing out and, and putting sales reps in every major market. Um, I am a, a, a big advocate of not growing outside of the U.S., um, until, mm-hmm. until you're ready to grow. I mean, don't need to be global, uh, right away. That that's a misnomer. There's plenty of business in the U S so <laughs> ge- geographically, you know, you don't need to go rush out and do that. Um, and the last thing I'll say is be selective with your channel. That that's one thing I want to kind of impart on, on the listeners today is, um, you know, don't be so quick to rush out and build a channel. If you've got really good relationships with, I would say, some boutique cybersecurity partners that have strong relationships with their customer, maybe mm-hmm. regionally, um, then, then then tap into those, right? Because that's a good way to kind of, um, you know, get your chops and, 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 and get your sea legs with the channel without thinking you can go in and, and work with the CDW or, you know, the larger national. Oh, Lord. So, yeah. Like your early, your early stage and you want to go like try to woo optive dude, you're going to be like a rounding error on their revenue. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. Real small. And, and, and having seen, you know, how the channel works. That's another part of the the career that I've really embraced is, you know, you, you know that there's certain select vendors that they're going to do business with and you have to be very calculated if and when you approach them. And a lot of times your sales team, you know, may have to go bring deals to them uh, yeah, in order sure. to get notice. And even then it's, it's still an uphill battle. So I really advise growing the channel, which is a huge component of the sales team too quickly as well. Nice. Yeah. I, I think, I think it's important. Like that's the big lesson I take away from the quote unquote, like tech recession that we just went through. We got a ton of organizations scale up these massive sales organizations thinking that the gold rush was going to be forever. And it obviously wasn't. And then a bunch of people's lives got ruined. And, you know, like it just, it turned into this really toxic, um, terrible environment to be in the industry, like at that point, because no one wanted to spend anything. Because as you said, cash is king. So if you were a practitioner, you're like, hey, so I had a whole like maturity roadmap this year, and it's like, we're not going to improve anything, even at first. And you're like, cool. <laughs> what am I doing here? But right on. <laughs> but like, you know, I think if we're more reasonable again about our expectations, and as you said, if we're mindful of the data points that most matter being liquidity, being our ability to, to protect our cash in hand, to be able to have sales models that actually project our channel prospects correctly, that I think leads to more realistic results. So you're on point on that. And it kind of speaks to what I want to ask you about in terms of brass tacks. Like if you look at your sales tactics, you know, what do you think helps and what do you think hurts those portfolio companies from a sales approach perspective. Now I'm thinking this particularly on do high pressure techniques actually work? Like, is this how you would recommend your portfolio sales teams to operate using these high pressure spray and pray? We're just going to spam you until you get sick of us and answer kind of thing. Or are you, are you still like kind of trying to emphasize with the partnership? Hey, 
let's actually do the consulting, do the advisory. Like, is that your kind of preferred approach across the board? I I think it is because that's how I'm built. Um, you know, the I I didn't appreciate when I was, you know, signing projects and, and running budgets. I didn't appreciate somebody saying they needed something by the, the end of the month or the end of the quarter, especially if those expectations weren't kind of set up front by, by both folks. So I think that's so important in the sales process is to try to get the transparency into, you know, do you even have, you know, challenges or requirements that I can even solve? Right. And, Mm -hmm. you know, you're just going to piss people off if you start to shove a square peg in a round hole for features that they're not even talking about. So you have to be very um, focused on listening to what they're saying and then also track. And and I'm a firm believer in some form of a sales management methodology. Right. And, And I know some people will roll their eyes on that, but I think that helps guide sales reps to properly qualify opportunities, set expectations with the buyer and vice versa so that you can, you can understand when these timings of projects will hit and then you can accurately forecast that. Right. Um, You know, shame on the rep if, and, and I've been in both sides of this too, but if, if they're not building enough pipeline where they can do that, Um, And I think uh, our portfolio companies are good at giving some leeway early on as we onboard reps uh, to be able to build that pipeline and do it the right way. Um, You know, past six months, um, if people aren't doing that the right way through a a good sales methodology, um, you know, force management comes to mind. There's a lot of old traditional ones, too. Mm -hmm. Then I think people will start to get a little panicky past six months if their pipeline isn't there and they'll start to do some unnatural things. And yeah, they start spinning off into like their own patterns and, and peccadillos. That's right. That's right. And, you know, I think the other thing that that's tough is not working, um, you know, I don't don't want to get too militaristic here, but not working the chain of command within the organization or not being astute of of how the, the organization works and mapping the organization. And that's the quickest way for something to blow up. Right. Is if you're if you're going down different directions because you're not getting the response you need, mm. um, that can be detrimental. And, and I think that'll cost the, the relationship. Yeah. Yeah. I also think, uh, you know, qualify out is just as important as qualified meeting. Right. If they're trained to quickly recognize this is not a fit, you know, being able to cut bait is actually a huge time and money saver for all parties involved. And you don't burn the trust. You know, you, there's other things you do after the fact that can keep nurturing them or engaging with them, but just knowing like, oh, there's nothing here this quarter. And, you know, it's just an allocation of energy. If, if they're desperate, they just like spin and spin and spin and spin and try to make the sale on this thing. That's just never going to fit. So, yeah, that, that's right. And, and then I think back to the consultative approach is, you know, come back to them with things that are of value to them that maybe, mm-hmm. you know, don't pertain to the hot boxing him into buying your product because that will stick with them. Make a connection, like connect them to somebody else in the industry that can help them. Right. Use yeah. the power of your network. And I think that's also a, a way to strengthen it to where when that budget does free up or when that project comes back online, they're they're going to think of you versus think of the, yeah. the guy or the gal that just tried to pressure them. 
right? Yeah, and you you mentioned things like a sales methodology, which is about process and you know standardizing that in a way that helps guide energies. But what's your take on also the role of the CRO as like a a coach? Because sometimes you're recruiting salespeople again on a hope and a prayer that this lightning new tech is like the hot new thing. And, you know, it's going to take a while to build that pipeline and execute on those relationships. But what's your what's your take there on the on the coaching aspect versus the just sort of like, you know, metric driven? uh, Yeah, I mean, I think I think a good CRO is a player coach in many ways. Right. I think um, I loved being on calls and when you're when you're the number three employee and you are the salesperson, <laughs> you're, you're doing all that. Right. And then, then as you grow the team, you are being a player coach, you're, you're flying out, you know, not so much anymore, but that's picking up, but you know, pre COVID you're flying out to help the reps, right. And enable them and figure out what do I do in these situa- situations and, and how do I respond if a client takes me down this road and just coach them up and, and provide them resources. Um, and it just doesn't necessarily have to be a subscription to, you know, LinkedIn navigator, sales navigator to, to say, Hey, good luck and go have fun. But you know, you've got to spend your weekly meetings, not just drilling pipeline and, and who are you talking to today, but actually adding value to the sales calls of, Hey, today we're going to talk about this. So it's a, it's a knowledge transfer session that often gets lost, you know, certainly in early stage, but even series C, you know, I think that can tend to get overlooked that you're not coaching up the sales folks and you're just setting expectations that they need activity, they need pipeline and and you're not adding that, uh, that coaching aspect to it. I'm an old coach. So that's just part of my, my DNA. So nice. I appreciate that. I mean, you know, it kind of, it's a perfect segue into kind of the last thing I wanted to ask you was, um, you know, in your experience as a seller, can you spot the difference between someone who is just trying to sell a product versus someone who's trying to help build a company? Yeah, I mean, uh, intrinsically, um, I think I always felt passion when I pitched. Like you can feel that. You can feel the passion in somebody's voice. Mm-hmm. And and it starts with being passionate and believing in the product because they sold it to other customers and they, they've absorbed that feedback that something good is happening, especially if it's new. Like, and it's transformative, right? Um, so passion has to be the first thing that comes out of a sales rep um, and, and they have to ooze that. And I think if they're passionate about the product, then they should be passionate about the organization and where it's going, right? So that's the first subjective thing that you can kind of feel in a sales call, right? Um, mm-hmm. I think the BDR stuff, back to our earlier chat, I think that can feel like they're not building the company. If that's not done right, it, it can really, um, I think, bring the um, the elevation of the company mission down because then it's transactional. And that's probably the best way to describe it. It can't be... yeah transaction. It has to be, I, I want you to get value of our 30 minutes. If I get 30 minutes with, with you, with George A. And I want you to be able to go, I learned something today. 
you know, even if it's one thing, I learned something because I know I'm going to learn something from George A. Right. And I think if Mm. that can happen, then that trust is built and you're more likely to get the next meeting and you're more likely then to start to build the foundation of the company because you stack those kinds of meetings, you're going to have success. So uh, I don't know if that yeah. that hits on all cylinders. It's it's not super objective, um, but I think it speaks to not to get all uh, wishy washy, but it speaks to the culture of the startup founders, what they believe in, and what you get from them as the third employee or the fiftieth employee, mm-hmm. where the message has been evolved. And the passion of the company has is and the culture has been created, they will get that and then that will um, emit in a sales meeting. Oh, did you nail on that? Yeah, man, I, I, I felt the passion there. Yeah. I felt the passion there. <laughs> what do you want? What do you want to buy? George K, what do you I'll, want to buy? Yeah, I'll say to our listeners, that is the only time that this podcast is going to recommend that any salesperson oozes something. <laughs> so on that note, <laughs> we'll, we'll wrap up <laughs> this episode of Bare Knuckles and Brass Hacks. JD, thank you so much for you know, giving us a peek behind the, the VC curtain and uh, taking the time to sit with us. I mean, you're awesome. Yeah, guys. Thanks a million. Um, you know, great, great to be on the show. Big fan and uh, keep up the good work. We need uh, we need this kind of relationship going on because it's it's not easy, you know, and, and we, we have to be able to coexist. That's for sure. That's it for Bare Knuckles and Brass Tacks this week. If you like what you hear, please consider giving us a rating or a review and share on all your socials. It helps others find the show. New episodes drop every Monday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.